Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. At first, I did not have a job, you know, didn't have a job, didn't have an apartment. Like, who does that? Goes, just hops over <laughs> the pond. <laughs> I told my parents something, so they can't freak out. That's probably the craziest thing I've ever done. Interesting location independent entrepreneurs and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to the Maverick Show. My guest today is Karima Ashiru. She is a Nigerian American content creator, world traveler, and founder of Hijabi Globetrotter an online platform that highlights underrepresented travel stories from a Muslim perspective. She also runs the Muslimas Who Travel group, which is a safe space for amazing and adventurous Muslim women travelers from around the world. It's a judgment-free community for members to connect, meet up, share stories and advice, and talk about the issues impacting them day to day. Karima has been featured in the New York Times, the Huffington Post, the Airbnb magazine, and the list goes on. Karima, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It is so great to have you here. I am super inspired by all of the awesome things that you're doing and uh, look forward to chatting about them today. But let's start off by just talking about where we are recording this from today. We are not in person, unfortunately. We're actually not even on the same continent. I am in Alba, Italy, which is in the Piedmont region in the northern part of Italy. And where are you today? I am in the Big Apple, New York City. Yes, New York City. And you are in the borough of Queens in particular. I would love to hear from you. How long have you been maintaining a base in Queens? And what have you found? How has New York and the borough of Queens in particular been for you? I have been in Queens, New York, ever since I moved in March 2019. And I really love it. For me, Queens, New York, it encompasses things I love, like diversity, diverse food, warm vibes, and there are a lot of families here. It doesn't represent that cold-hearted stereotype of New Yorkers, of people not caring. My old apartment, my laundry lady will wave at me, ask for me. I was talking to everyone in my neighborhood, which is not what you would think of New York. So I feel home in Queens, New York. And there's a lot of great food here, Greek food, Mediterranean food, African food, Asian food, everything is here. So even the grocery store represents like that diversity of the people. So I can't imagine living in any other borough right now. Yeah, I feel like New York City, one of the things that I love so much about it is I feel like it's sort of the entire world just condensed into one city. And I feel like the borough of Queens probably represents that more than any other borough. I heard there was something like 130 first languages spoken in the borough of Queens alone. I mean, it's just this unbelievably diverse and beautiful and wonderful place. Yeah, exactly. Well, I would love to chat a little bit about your background. Can you talk about where you grew up? And as you were growing up, how did your interest in travel start to develop? Yeah. 
So I was born in Nigeria. I grew up in both Nigeria and the United States. I would say my interest in travel started at the age of six. My dad had work trips around the world. He was a chemical engineer, so his job will take him to Europe, mostly Europe and America, and we'll join him occasionally. And my first trip was to Amsterdam, the Netherlands, and I was just fascinated by everything. And I think that's where that travel bog, uh, the spark of travel came alive. And I was just curious about everything. And I remember just going with my family and just thinking that one day I'm going to do this on my own and explore. So I think that's where the story started. And that's where I am right now. So how old were you when you moved from Nigeria to the United States? And what was that transition like for you? I was 16 years old. I was a junior in high school. And the transition was a big change, of course, because for many people, whenever they, I tell them I'm originally Nigerian, they always ask, like, do you speak Nigerian? <laughs> and that is not a thing. And that is not a language. Nigeria was a colonized country. So we had a lot of British influence. Of course, there are the native languages, which the three main ones are Igbo, Yoruba, and Hausa. But the lingua franca was actually English. So I'll say like one of the biggest changes was just like my vocabulary. And sometimes I still use some British pronunciations or words and people are like, why would you say it like that? And my mom, she's a teacher. So sometimes she says aluminium and all her students just start busting out laughing. <laughs> or she would say some words like that will be normal in England and will be weird to say or inappropriate to say here. And then also... My high school was a little bit like Mean Girls. And so I'm um, seeing some things that happened in the movies in real life. It made me realize it's fun to watch it behind your screen. But when you're in it, in the middle of that, it's not fun because high school is like survival. <laughs> and so that was a big change. But I was lucky because I have three siblings and we're all two years apart. So my sister was a freshman with me. So it was really nice to have someone that understood my background and we went through that same transition and not be by myself going through all of this changes and differences and looking different. I wore the headscarf too in high school and people didn't understand that. People were like, are you black? Are you Arab? Are you, what are you being with my sister? It really helped during these transitions um, when times were difficult. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about how was the situation when you got to Toledo, Ohio, in terms of how big was the Muslim community that was there? It sounds like there was not a very big Muslim presence at your school at that age. How did you navigate through all of that? Yeah, I would say Toledo has a lot of Arab population, but not particularly in my school. I was in a small town of White House, a lot of cornfield there. There were very few Muslims, but I feel like everyone was surviving. People didn't want to stand out. People wanted to fit in. So anything that made you the other, they wanted to disassociate themselves from. So I would say like my parents were strict growing up. And there were times when my mom was like, you know, you have to be proud of your identity. And I was like, no, the earth is going to swallow me. I don't want to do this. And my mom, my parents would just like put their foot down. At that time was like horrifying. But then I think it's one of those things that I've taken in life that, you know, it's okay to be yourself, even if the world is not doing the same thing as you are. Because when those things happen, the world didn't end. And I'm still me. And at the end of the day, people respect you for you sticking to what you believe in. And then, yeah, as I mentioned, we're not many Muslims there. So people didn't know what to think. This was also after 9-11. So there was a little bit of fear from people. If a teacher asked a question, the whole class would turn to look at me and to see what I had to say. But I feel like there was a little bit of inkling of fear as well. People in Ohio, they don't want to ask questions because they're scared of being offensive. Whereas people in the South, they're just blatant. They just say what's on their mind. But people in the North, in Ohio, they just keep everything to themselves. So you could tell that they were kind of not sure, maybe nervous or fearful, but they would never ask. 
until maybe someone was bold enough to ask and then it all turned to like, oh yeah, I did have that question. Yeah. So that was a culture there. And I know that you currently identify as Nigerian American and you've spent about half your life sort of based in each of those countries. Can you talk a little bit about that hyphenated identity and how that has been to sort of live between those two cultures? Yeah, that's a great question. In terms of being Nigerian, there's that value of being respectful to your elders, valuing education. Nigerians are always aspiring to be the top in many things. So there's that overachieving attribute that sometimes is good and sometimes not so good because you're always striving for perfection. I mean, there's that term of model minority. I feel like Nigerians also are examples of those because we're always trying to be the best of the best. But at the same time, Nigerian culture, there are only like very limited ways of being successful. That's by being a doctor, an engineer, those kind of typical immigrant ideas. But then also growing up as an American, it's that idea of the world is your oyster and not only very few options equal success. So that is something that I believe in. So I believe in like working hard and striving for the best, but at the same time, it's like you don't have to only be limited to these options. I think that's one of the ways of how I balance that identity, I guess. So I'm really curious about your path to becoming a world traveler. You mentioned that you were super inspired to travel starting at the age of six. Obviously, your parents had extensive experience traveling, but as you said, they were also kind of strict and had some traditional cultural expectations for you and all of that. So how did you sort of navigate that to pursue your dreams of world travel? Yeah. As a kid, I've always wanted to be independent in terms of financially independent, not always relying on someone to fund my goals or my dreams. And so, as I mentioned, my parents were strict. And after I graduated from college, I saved enough money to go on my first solo trip to Spain. If I had to ask my dad for that, I probably wouldn't have gone because it would be like, well, I'm paying for this. And I said, no, but it was more of like, well, I'm letting you know this is what I'm doing, but I've already saved for it. So I think that was one way I was able to maybe break away from that expectation of what you have to do is now like, okay, this is your choice. And I'll credit being like financially independent as the motivation for me to do what I want to do. So let's talk about travel and that first trip to Spain. And maybe let's talk about the very beginning of it as the first trip. What was your feelings and expectations and hopes going into it? Maybe also trepidations and fears and concerns. Where were you at when you launched into that? And then what was that first travel experience like for you in Spain? I was very nervous. I wasn't taking a normal path. As I mentioned there is just like that limited idea of what is successful. My family is pretty flexible, but at the same time, they're still parents. And I was very nervous because no one in my family that I know of had done this. I didn't know what to expect. After college, I studied financing in college and everyone was getting into one of the big fours and they already had jobs lined up. And I was like, I'm off to Spain. (laughs) I don't know what my future is going to be like, but I just want to learn a new language. So I was so scared. And I didn't know how the culture would be like as a Muslim in Spain. So there was also that concern as well, slight concern as well. But I was just more so excited to be able to like, you know, speak another language and improve on that and see where it took me. That's awesome. Well, Spain is also one of my favorite countries. I try to go through Spain probably once a year. I would say that I've spent at this point maybe about six months or so living in different places around Spain, right? Because it has so much cultural diversity just from the Basque country to Madrid to Catalonia to Andalusia to the islands, right? And all of these different places. And I know you've been to a lot of them as well. And I definitely want to get some of your perspective. So maybe let's start with Madrid, though, because I know you spent a lot of time there. Can you share a little bit about your experience in Madrid. And I will also say, one of the things I was most excited about, because I know you've written a lot about Spain on your blog, and I was reading through some of your blog posts, including the one about the hidden gems of Madrid. 
And when I opened that blog post, I was hoping that you were going to include my favorite hidden gem, which is literally hidden. And you did. You didn't even just include it, but it was the number one thing on your hidden gems post in Madrid, which was the tobacco factory in Madrid that has the best street art in the city is underground underneath this old tobacco factory. And when I went to, I've been to Madrid a couple of times now, but one of the times when I went there, I signed up for this street art tour of the city because one of the things I love to do when I travel is to see the street art from the city and to see how the local street artists represent their own city, the social and political critiques of marginalized groups and how they see their own city. So I love to do that. And I've done that in Sao Paulo, Brazil and Bogota, Colombia, and, you know, all of these places around the world that have these epic street art scenes. So I'd been on the street art tour in Barcelona and I've been on the one in Valencia. And so I wanted to see if there was one in Madrid and I signed up for the one in Madrid and we went on the tour and the guy takes us around and shows us all the street art in Madrid. And then at the end of the tour, he says, of course, I'm talking to him, right? Like I'm walking next to the tour guide and talking to him about street art and other cities and all this. And at the end of the tour, he said, I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't show you the best street art in Madrid on this tour. And I look at him, I'm like, why not? He goes, because I can't. He goes, but I will tell you where it is and you can go and you can see it yourself. And he said, I, there's no way I can take 20 tourists into this place to see this stuff. It's like a low key thing. And at least at the time that I went, right? Like who knows how it is now or whatever. But when I went, he was like, you got to kind of go in this way and go in yourself and yeah. go downstairs and do this. Thing. So I went and it was just this massive trove of like political street art in this huge underground tunnel thing. It goes out into the courtyard and they have all this stuff. And it was just amazing. And so I've been telling everybody about that. And sure enough, number one on your hidden gems of Madrid was the tobacco factory and all of the amazing street art that's in there. So I was so excited to see that. But I would love, though, just to hear from you about your overall experience in Madrid and what impact that first trip to Spain had on you. Yeah, it was marvelous because it's one of those trips that I'm personally proud of because I went in there not knowing what what to expect. There were obviously trials and tribulations because at first I did not have a job, you know, didn't have a job, didn't have an apartment. Like who does that? Goes just hops over <laughs> the pond. <laughs> I told my parents something so they can't freak out. That's probably the craziest thing I've ever done. But then I got all of those within a month and Madrid is the capital and it's usually slept upon because people just go to Barcelona. It's like more of the hype, but it's more calm. It's more artsy. They say it's like the traditional part of Spain, not as contemporary or cosmopolitan as Barcelona. And I just like the vibe there. Everyone just living life, enjoying life. And it's something that lacks in the United States, to be honest. Even the older people, they're living their lives. I just love that the food is just great. You can have so much food for like 10 euros. They have the like menu del dia, which is like a three course meal for less than 10 euros. It's there I improved my language and I guess also my confidence in navigating a country that isn't mine. There I learned about the culture. I taught English there. That's how I was able to survive. And I taught in finance companies. I taught in schools, private and public schools. I even taught in private homes. So I got to see the different facets of the culture and the people of Spain from different walks of life. Even their office culture was really, really eye-opening. And then I got to meet lifelong friends. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, you are now fluent in Spanish as a result of that. And one of the things I love about your content on YouTube is that you're doing basically bilingual content, which if you're speaking English, it's got Spanish subtitles. And if you're speaking Spanish, it's got English subtitles, which is really, really freaking awesome. Thank you. I also want to ask you about one of my other favorite regions, the Basque country, because you've done a bunch of content on the Basque country. I lived in Bilbao for about a month, and then I went back a separate trip, and I went to Donostia, which the Spanish call San Sebastián. But you have actually been to a place, and I was watching your video on this, that I have not been. You have been 
to San Juan Gastelugache. And I don't know if Perfect. I pronounced that correctly, yep. but I would love for you to share a little bit about that because it's, it's in the Basque country, but I think a lot of people are not familiar with it. Can you talk about what that was and how your experience was? Oh, that was an amazing trip there. Yeah, I don't know. I like looking for like these kind of hidden gems and the Basque country is awesome, but it's also very unique because the Basque language is one of the oldest languages in the world and there is no roots or connecting language to that. And the people are really nice. I mean, when you're in Spain, people are always like, oh, the people from Barcelona are not nice. And there's always stereotypes of each region, but I found the people really nice. San Juan Gastelugache was one of those hidden gems I wanted to visit. It was also one of the places that Game of Thrones shot. I don't watch Game of Thrones, but I think that some of the places they shoot are really cool looking. And so getting there is not easy, actually. The bus there is like two hours interval. So I was lucky to even find a way to get there. I went by myself, but I made like friends with these French couple and we were both all lost. So we're just like, let's just be friends and figure out how to get here. (laughs) And so that's (laughs) literally what happened. And I had a train back to Madrid that day at 5 p.m., but I did another risky thing and just went even though... The buses were two-hour intervals. I went really early in the morning. I was like, I must go to this little cute place. And then we hiked up to the medieval-looking castle. But it was totally worth it. And I'll do it again. <laughs> well, your video was amazing. And it inspired me definitely to go the next time you I should. am in the Basque Country for sure. I also want to ask you about Andalusia Mm. and the time that you spent there and maybe just start a little bit, if you can, by sharing a little bit about the history of an influence of Islam in the south of Spain and then how your trip was and your experience visiting there. Yeah, Andalusia is definitely my favorite region of Spain just because I feel connected to it for religious reasons. And it's also a part of Spain that is not often talked about. Even as I took Spanish classes, my professor was from Spain, but he just glossed over that fact. Um, so the, you know, the Islamic empire was in Andalusia region, starting in 711. It lasted for over 400 years, I believe. And when you go there, especially when you go to Granada, the Alhambra castle or palace, you can see those Quranic or Arabic inscriptions around the wall. And they're from the Quran, most of that. So it's just hard to ignore that part of history when it's there and millions of people go visit every year. So there's just something so magical about Alhambra. I've been there twice. I went there the first time. I was enamored, invited my mom to go there. I'm just in love with it. And I know I'll probably go again and again. It's just so magical. And then even like the food culture, you can see that hints of people always say like, are we in Morocco? You can see that connection of North Africa and, you know, Southern Spain all blended in Granada and the Andalusian region. Aspects of it, like the siesta that comes from that era as well. Some of the names were from Islamic eras too in Granada and or Andalusia region. So it's something I really want to talk more about. And, you know, many people do not know, but It should be known. (laughs) Yeah, the Alhambra is one of the most incredible pieces of Islamic architecture anywhere in the world. I mean, it is just breathtaking to go and see that. So I've been telling everybody they should do that as well. I know you have also been to Morocco. Did you take the boat from Europe to Tangier? Is that how you got to Morocco? Mm -hmm. I took a ferry. That's awesome. So I've been to Morocco a couple of times. I have never taken the boat, though. I feel like that would be such a cool way to arrive to Morocco by boat. I have just like flown into Marrakesh like both times. But I would love to hear because Morocco is one of my favorite places as well. But I would love to hear for you. How was your experience in Morocco? Where did you go and how did it impact you? Yeah. So I went to the a student group. They had like a really great deal. I think it was 99 euros for 10 days, nine cities in Morocco. So it was amazing. We went, we drove down from Madrid to Tarifa, got on a ferry from Tarifa to Tangier, and then just had a van take us all around the whole of Morocco. It was my second Muslim majority country. 
And it felt really nice because just hearing the Adhan was really fascinating. I know many American and Canadian tourists were kind of like, what is this sound? <laughs> well, I was like, yes, yeah, it's a call to prayer. And then being able to eat anything there. Well, like, is there alcohol? Is there pork there? I didn't have to worry about that. And it was just really nice. I didn't unfortunately get to do the hammam, which would have sealed the deal. <laughs> and yeah, and then the people, they were really nice as well. They felt connected. I felt connected to them. Like, for example, going to the market, I will haggle with the shopkeepers and also being Nigerian, that's something that we do. So they were like, this girl is like an Amazigh or they said Berber, but they mean Amazigh because she's like haggling with us. Let's see if she's from our culture. And I was like, yeah, I mean, and then for my other film Americans, they didn't know. They were just nervous. Like, I don't want to do this. I'm like, no, this is half the fun. You have to like, you know, reduce the price and be willing to walk away and they'll drop the price for you. So that was one of my favorite things to do there. So it was really a really nice experience. And it's a very beautiful country topography wise. And then I had my first mint tea there. I love tea, by the way. So the mint tea was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mint tea is the thing to do for sure in Morocco. And I also spent probably about a year in Cairo in Egypt, right? And it's the thing to do, right? Because as you said, right, there's no alcohol. And so what people do is they just go out and in Egypt, they you know smoke the shisha and drink mint tea for like the whole night. And the amazing thing about that is that you can be out till three o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. And then your bill comes at the end of the night and you've had one shisha and maybe like three or four mint teas and like the whole bill is like four dollars. <laughs> you know, like for your entire night. You don't out, have to you know worry. I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's all about socializing. <laughs> exactly. That's what and everybody's just like sitting outside of cafes and just like, but mint tea is definitely the thing. So that's amazing. So I want to ask you about the other Muslim majority country that you have spent time in, which is Turkey. Because Istanbul, by the way, is also one of my favorite cities in the world. I mean, it is just absolutely, I mean, it blew my mind when I went to Istanbul. But can you share a little bit about your experience in Turkey and how that was for you? Yeah, Turkey was amazing. Um, to be honest, I was kind of nervous going there. I didn't tell my parents at first because it was a very tumultuous time. It was in 2016 I went and you know, there's so much political situation. So I was literally at the verge of canceling my flight because there were just like all these things happening. But I just went because I didn't know when else I'll be able to do this. And I don't regret it because Turkey is where the East meets the West in every way. The food is phenomenal. The culture is rich. The architecture is breathtaking. The geography is just wow. And the people are, are really nice. <laughs> I had people asking me for my Instagram handle, which had never happened. Just walking on the streets. Um, I guess they like making new friends. I don't even know a lot of Turkish words till now, but I can't even explain it, to be honest. <laughs> but I, I really loved it. And I just love how modern Istanbul is. I hope I can visit more parts of Turkey in the future, I only got to see Istanbul. I stayed there for a week and I went to the Asian side a little bit. And then I was more so in the, in the European side. I think my favorite part of Istanbul or Turkey will be the breakfast. It's the best breakfast I've ever had in my life. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, the physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. My life, and it's not even expensive at all. 
Yeah. And I mean, talking about Islamic architecture, oh my goodness, the blue mosque and yeah. the Hagia Sophia and like all of this stuff is just absolutely breathtaking. It is. It is. Well, I also want to talk to you about your experience in South America and particularly to talk to you about Peru. Amazing country. One of my favorites in South America. I've spent probably about a month there. I've been twice to Peru. But I know you have also spent a good bit of time there. You've produced a good bit of content on Peru as well. And you have done some things there that I have not done. So I have been to Machu Picchu, for example, mm -hmm. right? But I did the version where you take the train to Aguascalientes and then you just go up for a day, you walk around Machu Picchu and then you come back down in the same day, which, by the way, does include a terrifying, death-defying bus ride where oh. you are going back and forth on the edge of a cliff where you just literally have to close your eyes and just yep. pray that this bus drive, you just keep telling yourself, He's been doing this every day for 10 yeah. years. He's been doing this every day for 10 years. I know this is not a new bus driver. This is definitely not his first week. It cannot possibly be. I am going to live through this. But <laughs> but you have actually done the four-day trek to get to Machu Picchu, which I have not done. So I would love to hear how that experience was for you. I still cannot believe it as you even say that I did a four-day trek because people that know me now know that I'm not like a great hiker. I was literally in Utah not too long ago and I was told to hike. I was like, no, and like, but you did a four day trek. How can you not do it? But I feel like it was just like a determination of I want to do this, even though I'm scared of doing it. I want to go to Machu Picchu, but through a very sacred and unique experience. I think what motivated me for doing that is just to walk through and see the people, see the locals, walk through the mountains. If I went all in the train, it's more limited to just tourists like me. I just wanted to know what it was like there. And on this trek, I actually went with a, a group and everyone there that organizes were locals. They were indigenous Peruvians, but they will cook the Peruvian food. And that was the first time ever trying Peruvian. I'd never tried Peruvian dish before. And they made it a five-star experience, laid a table with like the beautiful, colorful Peruvian textile. So you just were immersed in the experience. And they were all guys and they cooked better than me. <laughs> and they had all this delicious food from Lomo Saltado to Ceviche to Chicha Morada and just delicious soup and potato dishes that all I'd never tried before. So it was amazing. I wasn't the fastest hiker. And, you know, actually at that time I was living in New Orleans. And if you know, New Orleans is really low in elevation. So I was going from a very low elevation to a very high elevation, like 16,000 feet. So I am surprised I did not get sick. It was very hard to walk up. It just felt like even taking a step was climbing a mountain. So we went through a Salkantai mountain, which is, I think, the top is 25,000 feet, but we went to the 17,000 feet part. And there was a point where I wanted to give up. So they gave us a cheat option to ride a mule. And I felt really bad for the mule. And it was like my lazy ass is sitting on this mule and it's like <laughs> making it suffer. And we're climbing a mountain. I was like, do not look down. Do not look down. Is literally really below with rocks. And I saw cows on top. I don't know how they did it. I was like, if those cows can do it, I should be ashamed of myself. Um, but there was a point while I was climbing on the mule, the mule literally slipped and dropped me. And I was like, this is it. Uh, I was so scared. Thank God it didn't fall on me. So I decided to walk for the rest of the trip. It was definitely like one of the experiences where I pushed myself. And after the four day hike, we didn't like have a typical shower. We were in tents for the most four days. But I got to appreciate all these things, like having a bed to sleep, having a hot shower. And when we finally reached Machu Picchu, it was just a different experience because it's like you went through all this hardship to just see this beautiful thing. And then you're just fascinated by everything, by the civilization that created it. What was it like for them? And I just sat down there for like straight 30 minutes, just marveling because 
the beauty of this and also the journey that I had gone through to see this beautiful sight. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I know you also spent time in Cusco and the Sacred Valley as well. How was that experience? Cusco is so beautiful. I mean, in the U.S., we don't really see, well, maybe I've grown up in the U.S. I don't really see Native American culture, but I was able to see that very closely in Cusco. It was just so fascinating, new, novel, and exciting. The people there were nice. And Sacred Valley was also nice. Like, I just wanted to buy everything there. The textiles were beautiful. And then they had these beautiful llamas, which I'm obsessed with. (laughs) I was like, oh my gosh, (laughs) I was a little bit scared of them. It felt like out of this world, it was a trip of a lifetime. (laughs) That's amazing. And then you finally got to Lima as well, right? You get to hang out there and you spent some time with the Muslim community in Lima. You did a video on it on your YouTube channel that I watched, which was very cool. But can you share a little bit about that in terms of what you learned and how that was connecting with the Muslim community in Lima? Yeah. So Lima is very different from Cusco. It's more modern and it's by the ocean. And so Lima is also really interesting because it's a mixture of different cultures. At that time, I didn't know that there were a lot of Asian immigrants that had come to Peru. So that's why, like, for example, their previous president, Fujimora, I think, just shows that fusion of like Peruvian and Asian culture, which I would never have envisioned and so you can see that in the food they have like a stir fry called shifa and also there's afro influence as well in peru and you can see that in lima for many people that don't know there's susana baca who is a great peruvian artist she's afro peruvian and i love her work and so she also is from lima in peru and the people there were really nice as well we lived in the miraflores neighborhood And I'd actually reached out to someone from the Muslim community there prior to going, visiting Lima. And so I just wanted to talk to them and ask how their experiences were. And the mosque that was there was actually Miraflores. It was very convenient to go. There were Peruvian Muslim converts. Most of them were women. And then also some immigrants, Muslims from Egypt, Palestine, and a couple. So I just got to talk to them about the experience as Muslims in Peru. And even from my experience and from what they said, the people there, they are more curious than aggressive towards differences. So they didn't have like negative things to say about being Peruvian and Muslim, just like more curious questions, as you can see in that video. And that mosque was created by the immigrants there and that there are Peruvians are curious and then will learn about the religion and some of them would, would convert. So, yeah. That's awesome. That's so cool. Well, let's talk a little bit about your website, Hijabi Globetrotter. Maybe just start off with why you founded Hijabi Globetrotter, what inspired it, what the mission is. Yeah. So Hijabi Globetrotter actually came about when I was moving to Spain. I wanted to see what the Muslim community was like there. Most of the information I found were not positive. It was just mostly very fear-mongering, Islamophobic, and just not even enough resources for someone that was visiting or moving there to have. So I decided to create Hijabi Globe to share my experience moving to Spain and then even helping people that wanted to do the same by gathering information about resources, like where to meet people, where to have Zabihar halal food, where to pray and all of that. So that's kind of how it came about. And also share my experience working in another country. Some Muslim women might feel fearful of doing that. Like how would people react to me wearing a headscarf? So it was just sharing my own truth and my experience. And that's how Hijabi Gopra came to be. And ever since then, I shared more places. And now trying to share more about living in the big city, New York, (laughs) who I am. (laughs) And so today, when people go to hijabiglobetrotter.com, what will they find there? How has it grown and what is it like today? Today, I think right now I'm trying to focus more on, on the video. So sharing not only my story, but also stories of people with Muslim backgrounds, because I feel like those voices are stifled in mainstream media. So recently I just did an Ask an Afghan. 
there's just a lot of misconception about Afghan or women or Afghan people. And so right now, Hijabi Group Pro today highlights these voices. So you can actually hear from people. And um, although I share my experiences, my experience is not the only experience. So I want people to hear from people that are from those culture and ask those questions. So it's more so of that sharing other people's stories through video. And also right now I'm trying to gather resources to help people that are moving somewhere because just from my story, I've always moved around different continents, different cities and to share how I did it and help people like, oh, how to find an apartment in this place, how to get a job in this place or how to find a Muslim-friendly facility in this place. So that's what Hijabi Globetrotter is evolving. And then occasionally I will I will share travel stuff that is limited right now because of COVID, but I think that's where the focus and the direction will be. Yeah, I think it's really cool how you have platformed a lot of guest bloggers. So you've done sort of your interview series where you're interviewing people, uh, but you've also platformed a lot of guest bloggers of other Muslim travelers who are sharing their experiences traveling to places that you haven't yet been. And you've really compiled and curated and aggregated a lot of really high value content on your site. I also want to ask you about your Muslimas Who Travel Facebook group that you are one of the co-founders of. Can you talk a little bit about that group and how it came about and then who it's for, what it offers and how folks can join? Yeah, it came about as a way of supporting Muslim women. As I mentioned, many Muslim women are fearful of going out because they don't know what to expect. That group is just a way of encouraging them to support it and also to know they have a friend somewhere else. When my sister did a study abroad program in Hong Kong, it was through that group she was able to make new friends who showed her around Malaysia and Indonesia that she'd never met before, but it was just through that group. So that's the goal of the group. And we have ladies from Mongolia, Russia, United States, South America. So it's more of like you have a sister somewhere and you're not alone. The old Karima, when Karima moved to Spain and she didn't know anyone, now with this kind of group, it wouldn't be like that. It's like you always have someone that you can connect with wherever you decide to go. That's so awesome. We're going to link, by the way, all of this stuff up in the show notes. So folks can just go to one place at themaverickshow.com and go to the show notes for this episode. And there you will find links directly to the Hijabi Globetrotter website and the Muslims Who Travel Facebook group and all of that kind of stuff. So that'll all be linked up in one place. Karima, I also want to ask you for some travel advice based on all of your experience thus far. And the first piece of advice I want to ask you for is about budget travel and how to do things. Because a lot of your content has been how things do not have to be as expensive as you might imagine them to be. So can you give some tips or hacks on how to travel the world inexpensively? I'll say do a lot of research, know what the minimum basic necessity cost of things are. I will also advise join groups on ways that you can save money, like for example, for housing. I know some people do couch surfing or Airbnb is a great way to reduce costs on housing and also connect with locals as well. There are car sharing options, for example, in Europe, if you're going to Sevilla, for example, you're in Madrid, you look for someone that's going the same direction as you, and you can just kind of hop on the ride with them instead of paying like 50 euros for a train ride. I would say social media is a great way for connecting communities on ways that you can reduce certain costs. With flights, I will check Google Flights. You can see comparable option of flights and whatever is more affordable and that is not too far or not having too many layovers, you can choose that as well. So those are some tips that I, I think I can share in terms of budget traveling. Of course, last one, go with a friend that you trust. That's a great way of sharing. My recent trip, Southwest trip, would have been really expensive if I went by myself. <laughs> but going with friends always helps because you can reduce costs on food, accommodation, and transportation. 
That's awesome. Well, I know you have, though, done a lot of solo travel, and I want to also ask you about your tips and advice for solo female travelers in particular. Yeah, just the recent news about female travelers and all of that has been quite dark, to be honest. But I'll say be careful of how you share your location. Like these days, I don't share my current location, especially where you live in hotels. There are times you're sharing, I'm in this hotel and maybe one of your, if you have a lot large following, can identify that hotel and that might not be safe for you. Not telling strangers exactly where you live, that's obviously one. I would say trust your gods too. Your gods is mostly right. <laughs> Sometimes I've had to put on a fake ring, especially in Turkey. And when you feel unsafe, always stick with the crowd. I also use that methodology in New York City as well. Sometimes some people might seem sketchy, but, you know, being with a crowd, it's always a safer option. I also want to ask about your tips for Muslim travelers and hijabi women in particular. I'll say have an open mind. Try something different. I think the best way I'll say is like a lot of Muslim women, as I mentioned, are always scared, like what could happen, but just go out there and do it. Of course, be wise about it research a lot, find out about that place that you're going to, go on Facebook groups and ask people out there, maybe Muslim women, what it's like. It's kind of like why Muslims who travel also exist because there are women all over the world. So groups like that where you can ask, hey, is there any lady in Australia? What is it like? I think that also can give you an ease of mind that, okay, you know what to expect in a certain location. And then also... Whenever I go to a new place, I try to visit the mosque because there you can meet the Muslim community and then ask the locals there that are also Muslim what it's like and get some tips from them. And amidst all of the Islamophobia in this world that we live in, how can non-Muslims be better allies to our Muslim brothers and sisters? I'll say listening to us, like, you know, really listening Sometimes there are some experiences that we can have that maybe non-Muslims wouldn't understand. So if we're very, very frustrated about something, don't compare it to yourself. So I've been in groups where a Muslim lady was passing through airport security and they told her that she had to take off her headscarf. And she was quite upset about that. And then a lady was like, well, it's not a big deal. They take me, tell me to take off my hat all the time. Those kind of comments are not helpful because it's really not the same thing. So comparing that is not helpful to the matter because most of the time it's not really similar. And then if you see someone that's, especially they don't speak the language of the locals and is being harassed, if you can and you can handle it, definitely speak up for that person. It's really helpful sometimes. I appreciate you sharing that. All right. So Karima, with all of this travel that you have now done from the time you were getting ready to leave for Spain and now all of these things that you've seen and experienced, how do you think that all of those travel experiences have impacted you? I think for one, it makes me want to see more. <laughs> and it definitely makes me not look at the world in a rigid way, understand that there are different ways of doing things. Every culture has its own yardstick of success and success is really subjective. I think that's what travel has taught me. You need to know what your own version of success is, even if it's different from your family members. So I think that's one of the things I've learned from travel. Experience something new, experience something that scares you at least once in your life and be open to trying new things. That's awesome. All right, Kareem, one more question and then we'll wrap this up and move into the lightning round. <laughs> Why do you continue to travel? After all these experiences and all the impact it's had on you, what does travel mean to you today? I think for me, travel is education. It's definitely things I learned beyond the classroom. I'm no longer in school, but just immersing myself in a different experience, it helps me understand people's different point of view and also understand myself in reaction to this different experience. It helps me see the world in a different way. And then it helps me sympathize with people that are different from me. 
sometimes we don't understand the decisions that people have to make. But if you're putting yourself in their shoes or in their world for a second, you're less judgmental. I think that's the best way to put it. You're less judgment and more forgiving and more sympathetic. That is an awesome note to end on. And at this point, Karima, are you ready to move in to the lightning round? <laughs> yes, I am. Let's do it. The lightning round. All right. The first question, because you're from Nigeria, I have to ask, which country <laughs> has better jollof, Nigeria or Ghana? I'll have to say Nigeria. <laughs> That's a no-brainer. <laughs> Can you share with folks who are not familiar with jollof what it is and why they should definitely find it and try it? Yes. So jollof rice is basically a stewed rice, well-seasoned stewed rice, very delicious. It's usually accompanied with succulent meat and fried plantain. And sometimes people add additional stews, tomato paste on top. And there is just this rivalry of jollof between these two West African countries, Nigeria and Ghana. Although ironically, jollof is actually not originally from either of those countries. It is from Senegal, but Senegalese people are really nice. So they let Nigerians and Ghana go <laughs> at it. <laughs> you should definitely try jollof if you're in New York City. There are a lot of really cool African restaurants. There's this place called Lagos Lounge where you can try delicious jollof rice. There's a all of cool Senegalese restaurants in Brooklyn and Harlem. So I would say try it at least once in your life. If you're intolerant to spicy food, you might want to tell the waiter um, so they know ahead of time. And actually, while we're on this topic, let's also give a plug for the homeland at Nigeria and why should folks come visit? Because I just went there for the first time in 2019, spent a month in Lagos, and it was absolutely incredible. But I would love to give you an opportunity to share a little bit about the homeland and why folks should come visit Nigeria. Yeah, I would say that with Nigeria for its hospitality, people there love meeting travelers. They love meeting visitors. You get to try really delicious food like the jollof rice I mentioned, fried plantain, which is so delicious. They have this skewered meat called suya. You should definitely have that. Also, get to learn about a different culture and different way of life. Also, experience the lifestyle of people. I know people in Lagos really like to live it up. So if you're that kind of person, then you will not have a hard time fitting in. And then you get to learn about the music. Nigeria is very rich in arts, especially with writers. They have great writers like Wole Shoinka, Chinua Achebe, Chimamanda Adichie. There are lots of writers. There are a lot of great artists, musical artists, and also arts. So you, you get to experience that and also see the beautiful cultural attires, colorful attires, and the diversity of the people as well. So those are some things that hopefully that will entice you to want to visit. Yeah, it's amazing. I want to go back and see more of Nigeria. And a lot of folks don't, I think, really understand how enormous Nigeria is. It's just so huge. It's the largest country in Africa by far. I mean, it has like 15, 1-5% of the entire population of the continent is in Nigeria. It's twice as populous as the second most populous country in Africa. So it's absolutely enormous. And there's so much to see. So I just spent my entire time in Lagos, mm -hmm. which is also the biggest city in Africa. So that's a good place to spend a month. But there's like so much more of Nigeria that I want to see. And Lagos was just such a special place. So I'm, I'm super excited to go back sometime soon. But this is a lightning round, so we got to keep this moving. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right, Karima, what is one book that has significantly influenced you over the years you'd most recommend people read? Oh, I wish you said two, but one I would say, I'll say is The Alchemist. I love that book, and I know I'm going to read it many times because it's very insightful. It, it teaches you the meaning of life. It has a lot of layered meanings as well and puts you to the edge of your seat. So I recommend read The Alchemist by Porlo Cuello. Awesome. Who is one person currently alive today 
that you've never met that you would most love to have dinner with just you and that person for an evening of dinner and conversation? Trevor Noah. Living <laughs> 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 in New York City is so hard to meet anyone. <laughs> 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 that would be an amazing dinner. That is an awesome pick. I think we'll have a great conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Karima, knowing everything that you know now, if you could go back in time and give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to 18-year-old Karima? Not to worry too much. I went through a path in life where I was just like, who am I going to be? I was, am I going to be a doctor? Am I going to be, I don't know. And I just went into business school because I was so confused. My dad was like, you know, just go into business school. You, I mean, it's very versatile. And right now I'm doing something totally different from business. <laughs> so I was just very worried about what the future will be. By the age of this, I will have gotten married. I've had a house. I always thought life was going to fall into a certain progression I think one thing I'll tell myself is not to over plan and just go with the flow of life and enjoy the present. Awesome advice. All right. Of all the places you have now traveled to, what are your top three favorite destinations you'd most recommend people check out? Number one, Spain. <laughs> Number two, Turkey. And I'll say Peru. Awesome. All right. What are your top three bucket list destinations? These are places you've never been highest on your list you'd most like to see. Uzbekistan, Japan, and I think Azerbaijan. Nice. I just spent a month in Azerbaijan in 2019 in uh, Baku. <laughs> Super interesting place. Yeah. Really, really interesting place. And then, yeah, I've spent probably about three months or so in Japan. I've been back three times. Absolutely amazing country. So when you're ready to plan those trips, definitely hit me up sure. uh, and I'll give you some tips on those. All right. Final question, Karima. Who are your top three favorite Afrobeat artists. And just for context, I have been trying to put my audience onto Afrobeats ever since probably 2018, actually, when I went to East Africa and I started really getting into Afrobeats. And then, of course, I went to West Africa. I would love to hear from you being from Nigeria. Who are your three favorite Afrobeat artists? Okay. Burna Boy, Yemi Alade, and Tiwa Savage. Nice. All right. We're going to link all of those up in the show notes so that folks can go there and find these artists and they're all on Spotify or wherever you listen to your music. So you can go and download their music there and check it out, put it on your playlist and uh, give it a listen. All right, Karima, I want you to let people know how they can find you, follow you on social media, check out your YouTube channel, check out your blog, all of that good stuff. How do you want people to come into your world? Yes, thank you. So check out my YouTube channel. I post videos every week on lifestyle, life in New York, travel occasionally, and people sharing about their culture. So you never know what culture I'm going to highlight. Um, so I should subscribe and find out. On my blog, I share resources for some of the videos that I post. And then you can also find me on Instagram. All of this is hijabiglobeprotter.com. My YouTube is hijabiglobeprotter. And my Instagram is also hijabiglobeprotter. Awesome. And we are going to link all of that up as well in the show notes so you can find all of that, as well as everything we've discussed on this episode, linked up in one place. Just go to themaverickshow.com, go to the show notes for this episode, and there you will find it all. Karima, this was amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you for having me. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you by cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. 
Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber. To get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals, schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.